Welcome to Morning Ireland Extra with me, Lisa Pereira. Every day, our reporters gather material for stories that we then broadcast on our daily Morning Ireland radio programme. This podcast brings you deeper into those stories. Kian McCormack, as we speak, we're still very much in the dark days of COVID-19. And this week, you've been looking across the Atlantic at the United States and you've been looking at the epicentre of the virus over there, and that's New York. Kian, city officials have hired contract labourers to bury the dead on Hart Island. Yeah, that's right. And things are really changing fast there. Today, Friday, New York has as many cases as many countries around the world. So the state's number of confirmed COVID-19 cases jumped by 10,000 yesterday to about 160,000 cases, placing it ahead of Spain and ahead of Italy. So so to, to be clear, Kian, sorry to interrupt, but that means that you have one state in the United States that has more cases than individual countries, the individual countries of Spain and Italy. Yes, and the number of deaths in New York at this point in time is over 7,000. And you mentioned it earlier on, Lisa, mass graves in New York City. There's drone footage. You've probably seen it online, if you haven't seen it on television already, of workers in hazmat suits and huge pits um, where caskets are stacked. Um, I think as well it emerged that city officials have hired contract labourers to bury the dead on Hart Island. Uh, Hart Island was traditionally used since the 19th century to bury New Yorkers who had no known next of kin or whose family were unable to arrange a funeral. And at the moment, the Department of Correction, which oversees these burials, says about 24 bodies are being buried there daily, five days a week. Okay, and that really illustrates the pace at which COVID-19 is having an impact in New York State. But Kian, you've been speaking to people there. On Tuesday, you brought us the voices of Irish people living and working there. What was your starting point? How did you contact these people? Well, Lisa, my starting point was a phone call from a commissioning editor who said to me, I needed to tell the story of Irish people in New York, the impact of the coronavirus on them, their lives, their businesses. Uh, My main focus really to start was looking for Irish frontline workers. That was extremely difficult. I talked to many. Few of them could talk off the record because of restrictions by media managers in the hospitals or facilities that they're working in. I placed a lot of calls, some with old contacts, but it was a meeting, of course, on social media that pointed me in the right direction. Last week I was doing a story on DIY haircuts and someone in the Irish community in New York liked it on Twitter. I contacted them immediately by direct message and they helped me to reach out to lots and lots of people in New York. And of course, on top of that, I tapped into my own network of friends and their families to track down interesting stories. 
So one of the first people you talked to was Michelle Siganovich. She was originally a Kavanagh from Dunboyne in County Meath. She's on maternity leave from her job as a fashion designer. Yeah, Michelle is living with her four-month-old daughter, Ailish, and her husband near Central Park. And what really struck me about my conversation with Michelle is that her concerns, the ones that she expressed when we were having a chat, they're like the concerns you hear people talking about here in Ireland, you know, staying safe, uh, concerns about going shopping and jobs and employment. Okay, my name is Michelle Saganovich. Um, I'm Irish and I live in New York on the Upper West Side. Um, I'm married to my husband, Anthony, who is American. Uh, we have a four-month-old baby. And you're originally from? Originally from Dunboyne, Cantonese. So you've been working over in the States. Tell me about your job and what's happening at the moment. Um, well, I work for a fashion company. Um, I work in, I'm an associate designer in soft accessories. Um, and I'm currently on maternity leave. So it, my company have made all of their employees, they put them on furlough. Um, which basically means that you know the, the jobs will be there for them once you know everything settles down after COVID nineteen and the pandemic. Um, so hopefully things will pick up soon and um, we'll all be back to work. How are you coping? What way are you looking at things? Um, well, we're trying to stay positive here. Um, we have family in New Jersey, but obviously we can't visit them because we're all um, we're all self isolating. Um, we um, are just trying to stay positive and uh, check in with family at home. Well, what's it like today in New York? Uh, today in New York, um, it is uh, quiet. The city is extremely quiet and um, it feels very odd. The, when you say it feels very odd, what do you mean? Um, well, we live on 103rd in Central Park West and there's a, the 103rd uh, subway station, which I can see right outside my window. And there's just no one coming in and out of it for a Monday morning. It's very bizarre. Um, you know, there's no rush hour traffic. You see the odd person going in and out, um, which would be, I would presume, our essential workers. So um, that would be on the front line, rather grocery store workers or um, doctors and nurses going to work. You know. You mentioned the front line. When you go for a walk, you see it. Um, yes, so uh, our front door leads on to Central Park West, um, so we are right on Central Park, and we, on our daily walk, we can um, see the field hospital that is right in front of Mount Sinai. It's a very sad sight to see in New York, and, you know, usually those tents, you, when you see a tent in New York, there's either a festival on, or a fair, or, you know, um, just something more positive. How are you feeling yourself? We have, I have my good days, my bad days, just like anyone else, you know, um, uh, I've done a lot of FaceTime, a lot of, you know, uh, with family at home, we've got family in Pittsburgh, so some days you feel like you're constantly on FaceTime, so I think we're trying to pull back from that a little bit and, you know, try and just have a normal day, um, right, that didn't make much sense. Well, well <laughs> it does make sense, but what's a normal day in New York now? for yourself, your husband, and your four-month-old child? Uh, a normal day is basically we get up, we have a breakfast, and um, we try, you know, figure out when's a good time to go to the park. Uh, you know, having a four-month-old, sometimes it's when she's happy, but she thankfully loves her stroller, and we 
go to the park and go for a big walk and um, just we either go for a run or walk we take turns um, you know when we go out for a run there are family occasions in Ireland that you had hoped to come home for one was happening at the weekend can you tell me about that well um, my younger sister Elaine um, is due to get married to her fiance Andrew um, and uh, their wedding was due to go ahead in June at the moment at the moment it's been uh, postponed unfortunately but nothing's set in stone but uh, this weekend was supposed to be Elaine 10 so uh, we had to you know put that on hold and that's been unfortunate and we've had tears because we're all disappointed you know that the wedding won't go ahead and that and we can't be with family but you know we've kind of got up and got over that and we're all just taking one day at a time and as anyone can do and just um, try staying positive. Are you scared? Um, no, I wouldn't say scared. We're a little unnerved, I suppose, by what's going on. Um, you know, just for example, like um, my husband, you know, when he goes to the grocery store, I'm, you know, we've decided that it makes more sense for him to go because, you know, we don't have a car here in New York. Um, if we ever do have uh, need groceries, we, we generally order them online, but we have been unable to get any slots on the delivery services that are provided by different grocery stores here. So my husband's been going with a backpack and you know the shopping bags and filling them as much as he can. And it just makes more sense for him to go because he's a little stronger than me. So, well, much stronger than me. And um, so, uh, when he goes, he's wearing a mask and he wears gloves when he goes into the grocery store. And by the time he comes home, he's, um, you know, he's pretty, he's pretty exhausted because it's a mentally challenging thing to, you know, go and be in a confined space with other people. You don't know if you know, they're sick or not. And um, um, it's, I think that's the one thing that makes me a little scared or, or nerve would be just you know, if one of us got sick, but I, I think, you know, we're lucky we have two bedrooms here and we could self-isolate one of us if need be. The response in the United States, what's your view on it? I think it's been really um, good response by government, especially local government. Um, Governor Como, he talks usually every morning um, on the main news channels here and he's got quite a calming presence about him and he's uh, really reassuring and being very informative and you know I think it's been overall really good. And that was four-month-old Ailish making her debut on Irish Radio. And Michelle Siganovich there, Kian, she was talking about the kind of calming effect that Andrew Cuomo, the governor, is having on the situation there. But you also got an insight into businesses run by Irish people from Sinead Norton, originally from New Inn in County Galway. Yeah, that's right. Sinead runs the Dog and Bone and the Churchill bars and restaurants with her husband in New York City. And they've had to let 40 people go. Now, my conversation with her was about business, about facing those tough decisions um, that are posed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But if you listen to Sinead's tone during this interview, What's happening is really heartbreaking for her. Sitting here in my kitchen, 
my kitchen table in a tiny little town in northern New Jersey, about an hour outside of New York City. My name is Sinead Nocton. I am from Nguyen, County Galway. I've been living in New York City now for just over 25 years. I, um, my husband and I have two restaurant bars in the heart of New York City, uh, both of which we had to close on March 16th. Uh, you know, with the New York City mandates on restaurants. Um, and it's been a pretty surreal time to that end. We had to let go uh, just under 40 employees, which at the time seemed, as I said, very surreal. And as time goes on, it's like, oh, my God, like, we've let go our staff. We don't know when we're going to reopen. You know, it's a very, very, very strange time in New York at the minute. When you say it's a strange time, what do you mean? For example, one, the bars never close. So we are, you know, bars are open until four o'clock in the morning. We open again at 11 o'clock in the morning. We have porters and cleaners that come in at four and they're there until 11. So there aren't even good locks on the doors. You know, they're never empty. So even just walking through an empty bar in the heart of New York City is very, very strange. Now we had to board up one of the bars because of an attempted break-in and I hope that that is not a general experience in the city. We haven't heard of a lot of break-ins yet but um, a lot of people are boarding up their businesses. We um, we had to let go all of our staff on March 16th also to write an email officially laying them off uh, which was the advice for their unemployment which is a whole other issue. Um, and it's heartbreaking. We're, you know, we're all family. We've all worked together since we opened these businesses. It's, 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 it's a very, very strange and somewhat heartbreaking time in New York. And we're not even, you know, frontline workers. I can't even imagine what that's like. You mentioned it's heartbreaking, but the future is certainly uncertain. Yes, very, very much so. Um, our businesses are not that long. I taught here for a long time and did other things, but you know, one of them is 10, is 10 years old. Um, yeah, the, it, not knowing when we can reopen is, is a very strange thing. Not knowing if we will be able to rehire back all of our staff who are really family. Um, I was on several webinars and calls with you know, insurance companies and lawyers, you know, all of this trillions of dollars that Trump is offering to New York and trying to grapple with the, the loans and the grants and all of that stuff. And I was, one day I, I kind of zoned out a little bit and I started looking at the list of participants on one of the calls I was on. And honestly, it was a virtual who's who of New York City restaurant and bar life. Like I knew half the names on there. And there was certain solace in knowing that everyone is in this boat, but still it's crazy. Like business is much bigger and, and more established than ours. Also being concerned about the future. It's, it's a strange time. When you look at the numbers of deaths in the city, that mm. is very much yours now, the city where you work, the area that you can call home. What does it mean to you? It's hard to take in. You know, I think as of this morning, we had something like um, we were close to 5,000 deaths in New York City alone. Um, I, think, I think about our regulars. Uh, it's awful to get this personal, but like I think about the people who may not be there when we go back. And that, that sounds so utterly depressing. 
but we, we don't know where this will go. It's the empty bar stool. Potentially. Potentially. I know I shouldn't delve to that level of thought, but, you know, if the death toll continues to rise and you watch the news and you hear words like death and great sadness and all of these things, like, this is not a, a disease that discriminates, as we all know. We don't know who, who is going to be there. We don't know if I'm going to be there. We, we don't know how this is going to is going to finish or when. Now, you're not living in New York City. Uh, you're no. living outside, but everywhere is affected. Just tell me of your family situation. So in the, here, we, we live about an hour outside of New York City. I'm very grateful for that because I wake up in the country every day. Um, and it would be hard to imagine waking up in my studio apartment in New York. Um, you know, my friends talk about the, the sirens, the constant sirens. Um, but they're also uplifted by the, the clapping for the healthcare workers in the evening uh, at seven o'clock. Um, we have many friends in that world. Um, today in the news, it talked about how New Jersey and New Orleans are now the kind of where the epicenter is moving to here. Uh, our, our neighbors up here are worried. We're in a very small town, a very, very different life to New York City. But the, the worry has spread throughout and is coming out here now. You're in New Jersey? I'm in New Jersey. I'm in northern New Jersey, only an hour from New York City, which is... You know, it's funny, I complain about the traffic going in in the morning. It might take two hours. I, I would do anything, honestly, for the two-hour car ride right now, just to, um, just, just to be there, really, and walk in and see the same old faces saying the same old things, reading the same old newspapers. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just a little sad. But we have to remember life will get better and we'll, we'll come out of this as strong as we possibly can be and hopefully reopen and, and go from there. So that was Sinead Norton and she's co-owner of the Dog and Bone and the Churchill in New York there. Kian, by Thursday, you had tracked down frontline workers battling the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you tell me more about that? Well, my starting point on this was a mahal. And of course, that's where a community comes together to help each other out. It's an old Irish tradition. But this mahal was in New York City. Um, it's organised by Irish America in support of healthcare workers. And they've collected thousands of items of personal protective equipment, PPE, and donated those bits of equipment to hospitals in New York. One of the organisers is Sophie Colgan, and she explained the whole initiative to me. Uh, so my name is Sophie Colgan, and I'm part of a group called the Mehel. So it's Irish America in support of healthcare workers. And we're a community initiative that uh, we, we founded ourselves last week when the pandemic here in New York got to a really scary stage. So what we are doing is we're trying to encourage the Irish American community and specific industries to help us to find some PPE and get it donated to hospitals that are really in need. So you're looking for personal protective equipment for medical workers, people working on the front line. Why are you so concerned about them? Yeah, well, I think especially this week and last week, the pandemic has gotten very real whenever you hear the figures. So I think yesterday, which was Monday, the 5th of April, 
we um, there were 700 deaths here in New York, which was the highest death toll since the beginning. Um, and so this group, uh, Irish America for Healthcare Workers, is headed up by a man called Brian McCabe, and he works with a team of security in a lot of different hospitals across the city. So he is an example of a frontline staff member who is seeing um, healthcare workers running out of personal protective equipment um, at a really, really high and fast rate. Um, so his call out um, has been for us to try to source some of this existing PPE uh, in New York City. And what we've sort of said in our message is that the Irish built New York City. So there's thousands of construction companies um, who have these protective items such as N99 masks. Uh, they have Tyvek suits. They have protective headgear. Um, so what we're trying to do is, is reach out to all of those companies to see can they donate them to hospital staffs. And, and so far, we've, we've been quite successful. We had our first um, open uh, locations on Friday, the 3rd of April. So we had three locations open their doors um, and we received thousands of masks, of uh, boxes of nitrile gloves. We received 450 Tyvek suits and they were immediately assessed by uh, medical professionals and then brought out to hospitals um, in Manhattan. And this is also a statewide mission. So as the weeks go on, we're hoping to expand on the hospitals that we can help. How many of you are involved with the initiative? So there's about 12 of us on the committee, and that's a mixture of doctors, uh, health security. We have some community leaders. We have some lawyers. So it's a very good mix of people. Um, and as I say, with the same mission at heart to help those frontline staff who are really struggling at the minute and to really engage the Irish American community because it's so big here in New York. And I think a lot of people, myself included, um, over the last few weeks have felt uh, almost a bit useless trying to, you know, you want to help. And there's very few ways in which you can do that when you're stuck at home. But this is an initiative that hopefully can help people get involved. And we've also developed a GoFundMe page, which at this point already has $23,000, which is incredible. And of course, all of those proceeds are going to go to getting this protective equipment to frontline staff and, and then down the line, help them in other ways with food supplies and things like that. On a personal level, you mentioned the word scary. You mentioned the number of deaths. What were you processing all this yourself? Um, I think it's hard to to even put into words how we're processing it. I think you have one of two options. You can panic and worry and, you know, get upset or you can sort of act and try to try to bring people together and sort of work towards helping those people. I think, as I said, you sort of feel by, you know, by abiding to state guidelines and what we've been told by Governor Cuomo to stay at home. Um, you know, you can feel like a little bit restless and a little bit, you know, like you're not making much difference. But to be honest, this last week has been incredible because a lot of us now feel like we have a goal every day. We're trying to do something. We're connecting with more people. So it's definitely distracting me personally from from the pandemic at the minute in a, in a funny way. You have a specific story about something that happened. Yeah, so last week when we made the call out for um, big companies to make these donations, we also encouraged individuals to see if they could help, but obviously not put themselves at risk in any way. And there's three girls, that three sisters from Cork, um, who really took this seriously. Um, one of them, the girl that I know him, uh, individually, is called Caroline Wilkins. And her and her sisters took 
to Manhattan on foot on a scooter and driving and they went to 35 different businesses like restaurants and bars that have gloves and disinfectant and they 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 hit 35 businesses and they tallied up 13,000 pairs of nitrile gloves that they donated to this cause um, just the three of them and just a story like that for me is is really the essence of how the Irish American community here can really rally together. So that was Sophie Colgan there and she was talking about the really hard work done by those three Cork sisters who collected thousands of gloves. Kian, who are these sisters? Well, Lisa, they are Caroline, Kira, and Cassie Wilkins from Cork and they ran this social media campaign called Glove Love for Frontline. Of course, there's a hashtag ahead of that. But by the time I contacted them, Caroline Wilkins had increased the number of gloves that they had collected to 16,000. But what I loved about the conversation with Caroline was that she really gave me a good insight into what it's like living alone in New York City right now. We knew from working in bars that we had a bunch of disposable gloves available um, and we're all out of work because the bars are shut down. So we've just went about every contact we have and basically put it on our social media. Look, this is what we want to do. We just want to collect as many boxes as you have to spare in each bar. We thought we might get like three or four bars helping out and a few friends throw a few disposable gloves and it would take the pressure off whatever hospital we decided to donate to. Now we're at about just over 16,000 disposable gloves. Like people have went above and beyond like to help. And that's something to hold on to in a time like this. Like sometimes I can't sleep because I just feel so happy that that exists. You know what I mean? You're working in the bar industry. You're out of work then, are you? I am out of work. So how long have you been out? Uh, so far, it's been, where are we, about three weeks now. Yeah. Tough? Yeah, it's tough. Like, the first week was the scariest because uh, I in I have a roommate, but she's in the military, so she was kind of um, sent off somewhere to help with, the, with testing and stuff. So I was on my own, and I knew that it was going to be, like, quite a while we'd be here. I was concerned about, like, bills, um... And, you know, just kind of being on your own in a little shoebox apartment in New, New York. What's it like in New York? Uh, it's in waves. Um, so daily, like I ha- I make lists for myself daily um, and kind of make sure to be careful of my intake of social media and of the news. Like I want to stay informed and I am. Uh, but I chose to do this um, in, as an alternative to fear. Um, because it is a huge time of fear and uncertainty and uh, me kind of sitting home in a ball of anxiety, which is, you know, so common for people and especially during this time, um, it's it's not going to help me in the long run. So I, I, I chose to kind of pick something I wanted. I wanted to help, you know, um, but it is. It's a bit scary. Yeah. Have you gone outside? What part of the city do you live in? You know, what do you see when you're walking around? Uh, I live in the East Village and I love it. I'm actually so glad that I'm in the East Village while all this is happening. Um, you know, I go outside and I see art and graffiti and, uh, you know, people are in high spirits, like in the grocery stores or supermarkets. Uh, <laughs> people are, you know, they're sound, they're buzzing, like everyone's chatting to each other but keeping their distance. And then I live near 
sort of near the East River. So I'll go down for um, a run uh, and or a walk because I'd be base. But uh, <laughs> it's like a nightclub down there, except in the daytime, like people are out and it's like um, it's busy, but people are being responsible. And yeah, it's nice. It's actually like lovely to go for a walk. I'm like 20 minutes from the West Village. So I'll walk over there to Washington Square Park. It's nice. It's just it's strange. Like New York, it's, New York's amazing, but the New Yorkers make it so a lot of people have kind of left and I find that difficult because I love it here so much. So that was Caroline Wilkins describing what sounds like a very different New York to the one that most of us would know if we haven't been there, then certainly we've seen it on television or in news reports. Kian, you got to speak to a nurse whose hospital is benefiting then from the PPE collections. Yeah, that's right. And Really, this is what I set out to do, was to talk to someone on the front line. Um, I contacted Kate Hallisey uh, because she had been in contact with Caroline Wilkins. Now, Kate is part of the Irish-American community because her husband is from Tralee. She's working in a hospital. We won't disclose the name of the hospital because she requested that. But the benefit for her in getting the gloves and the PPE from the Irish community is that she feels more protected. She really appreciates that because under normal circumstances, there are so many pressures in relation to this kind of equipment that in some cases she has to store some of her protective equipment in a brown paper bag and reuse it. It's scary. Uh, we don't often say that we're scared as, as medical providers, but this is a virus that is very virulent and really it's devastating to families patients are dying alone Um, families are not allowed to visit them and nurses are spread very thin you know they're not given the right amount of protective equipment and it's it's a struggle daily is your hospital dealing with COVID-19 cases Yes, and we are dealing with them in such a way that we have built uh, our cafeteria has become a COVID ICU. We have beds that were built as pop-up in the hallways and in the atriums. Um, We have patients in closets and in um, hallways. It's really unlike anything that we could ever dream up. It's unlike anything you've ever seen in your nursing career. How many years oh, are you nursing? Nine years. Um, and it's been, it's never been like this. Um, and I've never felt that I didn't have the proper supplies or protective equipment. And um, unfortunately, we, it's rationed. So our supplies, um, we get kind of daily. Um, we have to reuse them. So things that normally I would go in and where once I am responsible for putting in a brown paper bag to keep all day. And so that just goes to show the severity of this virus and how spread thin we are here in New York. And what kind of items are you talking about? Is it Yeah, gloves? things that we put in our, in our brown paper bag are um, face shields, the N95 respirator masks, because um, they protect against the aerosolized virus. And then hairnets, as well as gowns. Typically, the gowns we have to use the entire shift as well. And after the shift, would you use it on a second day? There are places that have had to do that. I'm fortunate um, that my hospital we do not have to keep it for a second day. Though many of us are 
keeping them because we know how short um, other areas are. So we're all trying to do our part. You're trained as a nurse to deal with this, but is it difficult to deal with? It's upsetting in so many ways. You know, as a nurse, you're told to take care of your patient at any and all costs. Um, but when you're spread so thin and you're worried even about your own health and bringing it home to your family, um, it's it's been difficult. When you say you're afraid to bring it home to your mm-hmm. family, what do you mean? Yeah, I mean, this virus can live on on multiple surfaces. So I do worry about bringing it home and infecting my husband. Um, I have not been seeing my parents um, or my siblings who live in the same town as we do um, because I don't, I would never be able to live with myself if I knew that I was the one that passed it on to them and if they got really sick. Okay, well, look, I just be safe um, as much as you can. Um, Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And Kian, that was nurse Kate Halsey, and she was expressing concerns which I know healthcare workers on this side of the Atlantic have also had to grapple with, and it can be a very difficult situation for those people. Kian, during the week, we heard a standout interview that you did with a former cop, a former policeman. You have an extended version of that interview. Could you tell us about this man? Well, who we're talking about here is Brian McCabe. He's the chairman of the Irish America and Supportive Healthcare Workers Group. And he's also responsible for safety and security operations for a number of hospitals in New York. Part of his job has been helping to remove the remains of people who have died as a result of COVID-19. He says things aren't easy in New York at the moment, but you'll just hear the interview here. It starts with me having a conversation with him on Skype. And what I'm trying to do is set him up because I'm also recording the interview for television and online. You want to hear maybe the full story from someone like Brian in terms of his motivations and you know how he's been involved with the, the metal collecting the protective equipment for the frontline workers. But he himself is a frontline worker. But here we go. It's me talking to Brian and setting him up to do the interview. If you are you on a chair that has wheels or something? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, a so wheel back a little bit. Um, right, I need you to come. For, so you can see actually the kind of position I'm in here in terms of my head. If you can do something similar. You How's know, that? Yeah. Good. So okay, that's good. Yeah, that's very good. And you don't I, have much to work with here. You know what well, I mean? Well, look, I work in radio mostly, so uh, just look at this mug. You know. Well, yeah, that's what they say about me. I got a face for radio, so... I just need to take a level. Can you give me your full name and title, please? Yes, my name is Brian McCabe, and I am the chair of the METHYL, the um, Irish America's um, Support for Healthcare Workers. You've been doing phenomenal work over there. A lot of people going around collecting protective equipment for people on the front line. Can you briefly tell me about that? Uh, yes, and thank you for your interest and I and, and my my regards and concern for our people in Ireland as well. Um, this certainly is uh, global proportions. But what we did in 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 New York City here um, and for the metropolitan area is myself and some other people um, 
uh, both uh, people uh, with uh, as many years as I um, in, in Irish-American uh, cultural and social organizations, as well as a number of our younger um, recently arrived Irish who are here, uh, younger professionals and hardworking people. Uh, we banded together in order to try to assist those people who are on the front line in, in a number of ways, primarily uh, for the initial, uh, our initial concern is that they have some type of support in getting the pipeline open to get them the personal protective equipment that they need to keep themselves safe um, as, they, as they provide compassionate care and healing to those people who are afflicted with COVID. What has the reaction been like from the people on the front line to the equipment that you've collected for them? Well, one in particular, uh, our most recent um, um, uh, distribution uh, was to a Metropolitan Hospital where the chief nurse there and her team, uh, a lovely woman, very, very dedicated professional. They were greatly appreciative of receiving the supplies that can, that can augment the supplies that they do have on, 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 on site, but are being used up rapidly. Um, they were greatly, greatly appreciative, appreciative of that effort, but even more so, um, we got a very, very uh, distinct feeling that they were empowered and um, they got a, a sense of, um, of worth from uh, knowing that other people out in, their, out in the community are concerned about them and will take some steps to engage uh, in, in trying to assist them. You're working on the front line yourself now. What are you seeing? What are you doing? Well, I, I'm responsible for um, for safety and security operations uh, for a no number of hospitals, uh, and and as such, I am um, I am very very uh, inspired by the work that the frontline clinical staff does, uh, the nurses and the doctors, but also their support staff, uh, all, all of the people that need to provide them with the tools that they need. But frankly, we also cannot afford, we cannot afford uh, to have one of them uh, succumb to, to a conversion to the virus as well. Oh, thanks for muting. Excuse me. No, that's fine. That's uh, very much that's all work. I got to get back to it shortly. Okay, so. just very quickly but no, but that then. Was, that um, was, I know what that was in a text. So we're good. Okay, you, you are doing security in terms of... Yes, we need to secure the entire um, the, the, the campuses. There's been a lot of uh, expansion outside of the walls uh, in, in, in tenting facilities for uh, screening, for, um, uh, for actual testing. Um, so all of those need, we need to control the people who are coming in. We have to have access control. We have to make sure that the people who are coming in, we support those screeners to make sure that anybody who enters the hospital uh, is not in, it would not be indicative of someone who could who could bring the virus with them. The numbers so are very high in New yeah. York. So are you seeing that footfall at the hospital or the facility that you're working at? Yes, or, or, or via ambulance or being screened and then, and then being monitored elsewhere. Yes, and this is across the board. It, it wouldn't be specific to, to my to the hospitals I'm concerned with. This is everywhere right now. Uh, the numbers are rising, but there's also a, a human toll. There is stress. There is anxiety. You have been involved with the movement of people's remains from the hospital to 
to, to expanding expanding morgues, expansion into temporary morgues. Is that difficult to deal with? It is, um, but it is also something that must be done with dignity. But we have had to expand the facilities, and as such, as these numbers have risen, it, it, it is a um, it is a challenge. Um, it is there is a toll um, that uh, the, the the workers um, uh, that they face, um, and also every um, as the numbers rise, we are very cognizant of the necessity that each of those human beings is treated with the dignity, both uh, while they're receiving care, and if some of them don't make it afterwards as well. How does it compare to your experiences as a police officer? Well, um, I was the former commanding officer of the Manhattan South Homicide Squad. I worked in the Homicide Squad during the most um, violent period of uh, of New York City's history. And then I thought I'd uh, post-career take a nice job with healthcare and uh, help people and do what I can there. And I find myself in healthcare in the midst of a pandemic. But frankly, this surpasses anything. My experiences post 9-11 were, were horrific. Um, but uh, as, as sad and as, and, and, and as historic and, and uh, changing as that was, um, it was a relatively limited period of time for the initial shock although we we were involved in cleanup and and many other things for months afterwards but this just um any anything else that we have been involved in in the past uh this dwarfs it although 9-11 affected many and particularly in our community again Uh, and everybody knew somebody who was affected personally through loss this truly has just affected every single person um, in our city, our state, our nation, and, and in Ireland and across the world as well. But this dwarfs anything that I've ever, I've ever en- encountered in my career. So that was Brian McCabe, chairman of the Irish America in support of healthcare workers. And absolutely astonishing to hear him say that this is worse than 9-11. So Kian McCormack, thank you for coming in today. Thank you for telling us and bringing us the voices that you got um, through the technology, which I think we're all relying on nowadays, um, it it painted a poignant image of another part of the world which is experiencing real difficulties at the moment. And the interesting thing is that I think everybody in the world can now sympathise and empathise with other countries because we all know what it's like. But Lisa, we may as well add that while... The interviews are taking place across the Atlantic from my attic to America, that it's not so far removed. You heard at the end of the conversation with nurse Kate Hallisey, I was saying, you know, stay safe. The The language that we use in different countries is pretty much the same. It's, you know, you end a conversation now saying to someone, stay safe. And also as well, the concerns that you've heard about businesses, about well-being, about going shopping, about dignity and death. These are all issues that we address here in Ireland. So we may be separated by thousands of miles, but certainly the concerns are pretty much the same here in Ireland and in New York. Very good point, Kian. And I'm going to end this podcast by saying the same thing to you. Stay safe. Uh, Thank you again for bringing those voices to us. 
And for the listeners, please subscribe to Morning Ireland Extra. We bring you a lot of material. We can't fit it all onto the daily programme, sadly, but all of our reporters have material left on their recording machines and that's what we try to bring you in this series of series of podcasts. You've been listening to Morning Ireland Extra. It's a podcast where we go deeper into some of the stories you may have heard on our daily radio programme. You can find that programme, Morning Ireland, on RTE Radio 1, on the RTE Radio Player and on the RTE News Now app. I'm Lisa Pereira. Thanks for listening.